listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. All right, Mick, so let's talk a little bit about in-season nutrients this week. And we've covered over the last few weeks a lot of our thoughts on nutrients in general. But as we develop a fertility plan, you know, what a grower is going to apply in season and, and really enhancing his overall fertility plan by making those nutrients available when the plant needs them. That's really what in-season nutrients are to me. And what are your thoughts on it? You know, other than nitrogen, Tim, nitrogen and sulfur, I don't think of, of a lot of in-season nutrients until we maybe have a rescue situation or we're really pushing those yields up. Uh, Typically, if we can get those nutrients out ahead of time and have them there uh, and available to the plant is the key. I'm with you, Mick. You know, my primary theory when it comes to soil fertility and plant nutrition is we get the soil in a good place and we let it feed the plants. But when you reach a certain yield level or you have problems, then you got to come back and, and do more with it. So like you say, if you got to do a rescue treatment, that's kind of a no-brainer. But as guys really try to push yield and, and maybe they've got their fertility in pretty good shape and they're saying, okay, well, I've, I've kind of hit a plateau. What can I do in addition to what I'm already doing? And then I start talking more about timing. So like you said, nitrogen's king, right? I mean, as soon as we start talking about in-season uh, nutrients, we start with nitrogen because if you're not split applying nitrogen and getting some of it out there in the season, I don't even want to bother with other nutrients. Exactly. So when it comes to nitrogen, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different opportunities, and I, I think we're going to see the industry move toward more in-season nitrogen application, both from an efficiency standpoint as far as costs go and the standpoint of, hey, we need this stuff to make it in the plant, and we don't want it in our groundwater, we don't want it in our surface water. I usually start with maybe a, a high clearance spreader and a dry urea application. Where where do you think with guys? You know, I like the wide drop system. Uh, you want to talk about efficiency and enhancing efficiency, getting that nutrient right next to the corn plant in that seven inch root zone. And as soon as we get a any type of moisture, whether it's a, a heavy dew or a rain event, we're pushing that nitrogen right into the root zone and, and available for uptake. So when you start that conversation with a grower and, he, and he's, you know, he's used to doing everything preseason, you know, maybe he's an anhydrous guy, maybe he's a weed and feed guy, maybe he's a urea guy, but he's used to everything before planting or an early um, post plant, but long before the crop's up. I'll normally talk about, you know, let's start with baby steps. Let's don't just try to completely throw away what's been working for you in the past because what's been working for you in the past got you to where you're at now. We don't want to move backwards. But how about a two-third up front and a one-third later? <clears throat> Depends what your equipment is, so that makes a big difference. But if the guy's, you know, wanting us to make the application, then, of course, it's going to be with one of our high-clearance either spinner boxes or air machines. Let's do two-thirds up front with your normal program, whatever that is, and let's do a third. And let's let's give ourselves a little cushion with weather. Let's talk about V4, V6, but if we get a little wet and that pushes us back to V8, I don't have to worry too much about green snap. If you start, start at V8 and then it gets wet, now all of a sudden you're pushing through tall corn and you start worrying. Where are you at? You know, uh, we're fortunate in the area that we cover. Uh, we have a lot of pivots around and we have an, the ab ability and it's a no-brainer to me. You're running water across that 
field already, why not put it through the pivot? Uh, several years ago, I actually looked up some numbers and, and did some guesstimating in the state of Nebraska how many pivots we were actually running nutrients through. And it was a guesstimate, but uh, that's probably our most underutilized source of applying in that we don't utilize. Yeah, I would agree with that too. And it gives you so much flexibility. The nice thing is once you get that pivot set up with your your chem valve, so you got a check valve, obviously we don't want fertilizer products going back into our, our groundwater. So it's got to be set up properly and checked. But once you've got that done, getting a tank out there and being able to put nitrogen through multiple passes in the season, that's a nice thing is when you're working with a pivot, now we've moved away from, okay, well, let's move one application back into the growing season. Now we could do two or three of them. Or five or six. Exactly. You know, one conversation you really have to have with a grower before you even start down the road of in-season nutrients is, do you understand your soil texture? Now, most growers have been growing in sands. They understand that. They know what they're dealing with. But some guys, sometimes a guy will pick up a piece of ground, maybe in a river bottom, an area he hasn't farmed much in the past, and he's amazingly surprised at how light and sandy that soil is. Absolutely. You know, we think about those later applications and moving nitrogen later in the season, and and you got to think about it, Tim. That's when that corn plant's going to use it. That first month and a half of its life life cycle, that corn plant's not using much nitrogen. And if we put it all out there ahead of time, we're putting that at risk. Uh, it's a gamble it, to me. Uh, you know, you say two-thirds, one-third. I'd like to see a 50-50 split. And let's put 50% of that on, on later in that plant slip life cycle and be more efficient with it. Uh, sulfur is, follows the nitrogen curve fairly well. We can mix sulfur with our nitrogen late uh, so we can take advantage of those things. And you know when you talk to guys that don't have the pivots their fear is of oh, side dress what if I don't get out there. And I've always used the argument if it's too wet for us to get out with a side dress machine, it's too wet. That corn crop is not moving forward. It's sitting stagnant. We've seen that, especially in 2019. Where this corn crop, when we were real wet there in, in June, it just sat there and didn't move. And then we started to dry up and then it, and it shot off. And uh, you and I witnessed that when we were doing some other recordings with video camera out of the plot, where we were recorded two weeks in a row and it really didn't change. And then the third or fourth week later, it took off and, and started growing. You're right, Mick. There's a lot of excuses that get made as to why you can't do split application. You know, I, I know you, you like a little bit more later in the season. I like to be a little more conservative. I like that no less than 50% of your total nitrogen in there by V3, V4. And I'd probably prefer two-thirds of it. And again, before V4, and then come back and do another, you know, half of what you've got left. So I suppose that's about a sixth of your nitrogen program in that V8 stage and another six right around tassel or even brown silk. If I were to take a 200 pound nitrogen application, put a 120 of it 
before preseason and then take that other 80 and make it a 40 pound application around v6 and another 48 pound application around tassel or brown silk for a guy with a cc 12 or above that's just about ideal for me i know sometimes you like to do it a little different than that so i like yeah, to argue with uh, you <laughs> <laughs> i know you like to argue with me so uh, you know i look at it as we're going to use 25 pounds to v6 roughly in a corn crop and so do we need much more than 25 pounds out there ahead of that crop absolutely not uh, you know yes fuel and time costs money uh, but if we can go out there at a, at a v3 get an application across and protect it with a stabilizer to keep it a more keep it from going up to the atmosphere or down into the groundwater that's that's a step and then come back maybe at, at V6 to V8 and hit hit it with again in a side dress situation. If we got a pivot, I want to push as much later as I possibly can. I want to have enough there by V V5, V6 when that corn is determining yield that we don't limit yield and then push the rest as late as we can. Uh, we overlook how much nitrogen is moved or or taken up at post tassel uh, a lot of times. I think that we got to think about that. And if we have nitrogen laying out there, especially if we don't put a stabilizer on it and we get high, high rainfall events, heavy rainfall events, it's either going to go into the groundwater or up into the atmosphere. And, and we have a lot of loss opportunity there. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I know we'll talk about that on a future episode here. That grain fill period, having nitrogen readily available to that plant for grain fill. So as it's finishing up, adding additional carbohydrates, I mean, I have a pretty good-sized kernel out there. When it's 80% moisture, I got a lot more fill to do as far as making that kernel weight goes. I want nutrients out there. Now, because, again, I like to argue with you, I'm going to throw out another caveat. Uh, you know, your conversation about the way you want to put it there, yeah, okay, I could go with that unless... I'm corn on corn. If I'm corn on corn, I want more of that nitrogen up front because I want to feed the bugs that are breaking down those corn stalks so I can get those nutrients out and get them released. So I, I would probably vary a little bit on how willing I am to let a grower push more later in the season. Again, I'm talking a medium textured soil, not a sand. A sand, you flat out got to push it out there. But a medium textured soil, if he's corn on corn, I need 50% of that nitrogen in their preseason because I'm trying to feed the soil and the bugs and all that to get nature's nitrogen back out when I need it. You know, I'd, I'd agree to, with you to an extent. I don't think you need 50% of it. Uh, personally, I think you, an additional 25 pounds out there will feed those microbes enough. Uh, you know, when we think about breakdown of stalks, uh, a lot of times we talk about microbes doing that. We don't get specific enough. It's the fungi that actually do that breakdown. Uh, we need to feed, think about feeding that fungi. Uh, there's methods and there's ways to do that, and I've played with several of those that, that help that breakdown. Uh, you know, in, in worked ground, that breakdown happens a lot easier than it does in no-till. Uh, the no-till I would push to have another 25 pounds uh, out there ahead of it. In worked ground, maybe 10 to 15 pounds. You're right, you know, even though I'm a firm believer in no-till and, and truly like no-till, 
you work that ground out, you get those stocks in contact with the soil, you get the soil warming up a little bit faster, Mother Nature takes care of a lot of this for you. But, you know, again, we like to push up our planting dates. Uh, that nitrogen can kind of help things get started. So you open the door to sulfur. Um, you know what, before we go into sulfur, let's finish up nitrogen a little bit. We talked about Y drops. We talked about a pivot. We talked about high clearance dry spreaders with dry product, uh, you know, urea mainly, of course, uh, maybe mix in a little, little ammonium sulfate, but mainly the urea, whether that's a, uh, you know, spinner box or whether that's a, an air machine with booms. Um, you know, we're set up pretty well with that, you know, here at CVA to be able to help a grower get down that road. When we talk about things a little outside of that box, so the Haggy um, high clearance uh, sprayer with the attachment, so you're actually getting the uh, the nitrogen in the soil with that the colder attachment, um, that looks like a great piece of equipment, and I've seen that go through tasseled corn, and I really like the ability to move uh, nitrogen in there late in the season, but sometimes it's a little tough to get through a lot of acres with that. What thoughts on that one? You know when. It's stressful, for number one, for the driver. It's stressful for the grower uh, getting through that high high corn. Uh, and then you're relying on Mother Nature a little bit when you're, when you're doing that. Uh, you don't want a wet field, and especially if you got any roll to it, yep. you're going to slide and, and take out yep. plants, and, and there goes yield. In so. any of those gullies that happen to develop during the growing season, you can find those because you'll never see them, but the wheels will find them. The wheels find them. So will those coulters as you bend that thing. But it is a great piece of equipment to get nitrogen in late if you don't have a pivot. Yes. If you got a pivot, why not use that? The other one I think about, and I know our Kansas uh, uh, group has been using this a lot, and, and, you know, a lot of times we think airplanes are really expensive. We use airplanes all the time for fungicides. You can deliver pretty good amount of urea, nitrogen fertilizer as urea, um, through an airplane. Right. And, and that works. It is it ideal. You're getting a, a small burst of, of nitrogen. Uh, it's another way to, to handle a situation. Uh, 2019 is a, is a classic year. We spread a lot of urea with airplanes. Uh, if you go to the mid-south area of the United States, they utilize ammonium nitrate. Uh, we don't sell a lot of ammonium nitrate in the state of, state of Nebraska uh, based off of what happened in 1982. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, uh, urea through an airplane, ammonium nitrate through an airplane, that's another solution. Yeah, yeah, and not a, not a bad one, especially like you say, if you absolutely need it for a rescue, planned or not, yeah, maybe. Um, I, you know, we're seeing more and more, like you said, the, the hybrids today seem to respond to having a nit nitrogen applied later and all the way into brown silk or maybe even all the way into, you know, milk. Um, we're still, we've got a lot of grain fill left and we need nitrogen to build those proteins to fill that grain up. Nothing's more frustrating, Tim, than walking a field at tassel time and seeing a lot of the yield potential out there. And then walking it again two, three weeks later and seeing those ears tipping back because the plants run out of nitrogen. That's right. So one more I'll throw out there with that airplane. You know, you and I both uh, believe in fungicides in corn and, and soybeans. You know, we certainly need to scout for diseases. Shouldn't be just something that's done without any thought going into it. But there are definitely some plant health benefits. What about including a nitrogen um, piece with that fungicide? Some type of foliar nitrogen product. So a lot of the slow release nitrogens, it's a methylated urea product. Uh, you can get a little bit of nitrogen on it. 
if you talk to the right people, they say there's an efficiency factor there. I don't like to play efficiency games myself. Uh, you're getting, what, eight pounds a gallon, eight pounds and a gallon out of that product. Uh, we have seen a lot of data. Uh, to me, having that in with the fungicide is not only the nitrogen, it's a deposition aid. aid. Sure, uh, sure. I've seen work done in, in Illinois several years ago, and it was repeated here in Nebraska, where having that methylated urea in there really gets that fungicide deeper into the canopy. Yeah. Yeah, I always had a little bit of a problem with how three pounds all of a sudden became 12 pounds, but we'll leave that alone. <laughs> we do know it's frosting on the cake. It's not the cake, but it's frosting on the cake, and sometimes frosting is five bushels, and sometimes frosting is 20 bushels. So I think a grower's got to work with it. Don't expect the same results every year, but again, nitrogen late in the season as that plant's trying to fill its grain is important. I, I think a lot of that foliar in that goes on with the fungicide application, the results that we're seeing from that, they're coming from the fact that we were just a little bit short there at the tail end of that season. So you opened up the, the door on phosphorus a little bit ago. Um, let's talk a little bit more about that. I like that product. Um, Tim, I, you're, I think you're meaning sulfur. You know, I had one call years ago on phosphorus. It was a really low testing field, and he didn't get his samples back until after he planted. And he's wondering about phosphorus. And I said, you know, if you're going to do a side dress anyway, put some uh, 1034 in with your with your UAM as you do your, your culvert side dress. Other than that, forget it. So anyway, Mick, since I can't tell the difference between phosphorus and sulfur, and you opened the door on sulfur... What are your thoughts? You need to know the difference between a P and an S. <laughs> <laughs> so, kind of thinking right back to that nitrogen. So, as I'm delivering sulfur, if I've got a pivot, I got the tank there, ammonium thiosol, great material, works perfect. If I'm working with that high clearance uh, spreader, dry machine, either way, mixing in a little bit of, say, gypsum or ammonium sulfate with my urea. Absolutely, absolutely. Probably would lean more towards the ammonium sulfate in a side dress situation because of availability. Yeah. And that plant's going to want it right now, and the gypsum's going to take a little bit of time to release. Another one I think about is um, KMAG. So the potassium magnesium sulfate. If you've got lighter soil and you need the magnesium and you need the potassium, you need the sulfur, 100 pounds of KMAG is a great top dress, side dress um, additive as well. You know, and a lot of our data that we look at and a lot of trials that have been out have shown later, later response to the potassium. And it's an argument with, within us, with, between you and I, can we release enough potassium out of that soil yep. during the growing season to meet the peak demands of 11 pounds per day? Right. I, I don't know. I, I don't think we can. And if we have a uh, supplemental source of that potassium, it makes sense. And even though our listeners might think there's absolutely no method to the way we go through this, there's a reason we're going through this in the order of nitrogen, sulfur, and potassium, is that's about the order we would take a grower through. If, if you're not doing any in-season application, start with nitrogen. If you're doing some nitrogen and that's working well for you, it's part of your system and you want to take the next step, it's sulfur. Those are working well for you and you want to take the next step, 
It's potassium. potassium. So it just, you work a system, right? You, you start with a grower wherever they're at, and you start saying, okay, here's something we could try to do different to chase yield, and you work with it. We'll see what Bree's going to edit out of this thing, but it's time for a funny farm story. Mick, you're up. I hear you learned how to drive a truck without a clutch. So, yeah, Tim, this goes way back, and, and I won't put a year on it, but I was a young kid, and, and I was working at the university, and the boss says to me, he says, I want you to go get some dirt over there, and I want you to bring it back, and I want you to back up parallel to the fence and dump that dirt, and it, this fence sits on a hill slope. And I said, don't you mean perpendicular? And he says, no, I want you parallel with the fence when you dump. I said, I think perpendicular would work a little bit better. Long story short, I went back, got the dirt, hauled it over, backed up parallel to the fence, started to lift, and it was an older older dump truck, and I heard it start creaking, and I hit the down button, and they don't respond when they're old. <laughs> and <laughs> Me this, either. You've never responded, Tim. And so, needless to say, pretty soon the truck's laying on its side and I'm crawling out the passenger door <laughs> to get out. And I walk in and I, I said to the boss, I said, you mind helping me tip this truck back up? And he said, what do you mean? And, and he walks out and as soon as he walks out the door, he sees where I was and he says, oh, crap. I meant perpendicular, and I said parallel. <laughs> I said, I tried to argue with you. Just send him back to geometry class. <laughs> exactly. So we take the truck to get repaired, and, and on the way back, and since I was the one that drove it when it tipped over, I got to go get it, and it's not a fun truck to drive down I-80 anyway, and I go to get off the exit there on at the Waverly exit, and... I have no clutch and the brakes are questionable and it's about five o'clock coming into Lincoln, Nebraska to go to East campus was a fun drive back. A lot of rush hour traffic. A lot of that. rush hour traffic. Luckily I knew the area well enough. I, I cut off into some side streets, finally got it down into second gear where I could maintain a, a lower speed rather than cause coming off the inter, interstate, I was in 10th and Maintained that low speed with minimal brakes, and I pulled into the East Campus right behind the Animal Science Building. I shut that thing off, let her roll to a stop, and left it there until the next morning when I got told I was stupid for parking it there and, <laughs> and told the bus, well, you go move it since it doesn't have a clutch. And he says, oh, it's got a fine clutch. We just put one in it. And he goes to move it, and he says, oh, the clutch is out. So... <laughs> Nothing like trying to plan your trip to avoid any stops whatsoever. Exactly. Because during rush stop, hour in Lincoln. Yeah. The minute you stop, you're done. It's tow truck now. Yep. All right. Let's go back into those uh, in-season nutrients again. So phosphorus, you know, we, we walk through those nutrients and normally right after, you know, nitrogen and getting our soil pH right, we're going to talk about phosphorus. Well, we didn't do that. We didn't do that for a reason, Mick. I mean, what's your thoughts about using phosphorus in season? You know, typically we see no, very minimal to no response to phosphorus in season. I have seen it in some emergency cases, and I think you and I discussed one earlier uh, where you had seen it, where we have to have some phosphorus out there. But we're just, the way phosphorus is taken into the plant, the way phosphorus works in the soil with the tie-ups and so forth, Phosphorus responses in season just don't happen. Yeah. And I tell you what, Tim, 
if you want to really piss a grower off or, or piss somebody off, have them put phosphorus, liquid phosphorus through the pivot. Because what do we make when we put hard water with phosphorus? Well, calcium phosphate. And that's a fun thing to clean out of a pivot, Tim. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Nothing like finding out how quick phosphorus will precipitate out and throwing it in through a pivot. Exactly. You get to change all your sprinkler heads. So, you know, one thing I think about a lot uh, when we talk about in-season nutrients are your micronutrients, because it seems like growers are, are oftentimes, especially guys, you know, trying to push the edge a little bit, you know, they'll, they'll immediately come up and start talking about something like boron or manganese, and should I, should I apply a foliar micronutrient? And of course, I want to walk them through those other things first, the nitrogen, the sulfur, the potassium. But as you talk about foliar, foliar micronutrients, what do you like to talk about, Nick? You know, we we do see responses, uh, especially to a manganese. Uh, we see a response to a zinc. Uh, beyond that, in some really high chlorotic areas, we can see some iron, mm -hmm. some sure. responses to iron. But beyond the manganese and zinc, you know, Tim, beyond that, zinc and manganese i don't see a lot of responses to those other nutrients uh in occasion when we have some real deficiencies and we'll maybe see a bump uh, boron's a little different uh, boron everybody talks about uh, i get that call probably twice a week you probably get it more uh, about wanting to put boron in and you know, boron is responsible for movement of those sugars into the in, in to make starches of that kernel or the fruiting body, uh, however you want to terminology you want to use. Uh, but boron's so far down the list. I think we got to have everything above it correct before we worry about our boron. Uh, I had somebody ask me about boron, and I started asking them questions about their nitrogen program, and they were short on end to begin with. So. Yep, it goes back to that priority list. Just the whole reason we're covering these things and the order we're covering them in today is that's our belief in, in the order you need to go tackle them at. You know, I, and as we get to micronutrients, I think, you know, it's the same thing with every agronomist, right? You ask two different agronomists or five different agronomists, however many agronomists are in the room, that's how many different answers you're going to get when you get into the micronutrients. I guess, you know, zinc to me, Love it in furrow. Normally, I'm going to be more of a let's build the soil levels. Let's make sure it's in furrow. Worrying about it in season. Eh. Manganese, you know, with the whole thing in the glyphosate and maybe its potential to be tied up by glyphosate in the plant and not being able to use be used by the plant. It gives it some more reason. Uh, boron, yeah, same kind of the same thing. It, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Let's make sure we've got our other bases covered before we jump on there. But you know, your guys that are really pushing yield, that is one of the things they're paying attention to. Absolutely. Copper. Um, manganese. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk, manganese, you think about its role in that plant is for photosynthesis. We do see a greener plant when we put manganese out. Uh, consistency of yield, yield increases don't always match up, but it's just one of those things it does give you a greener canopy yeah well in a lot of our foliar um, fertilizers it might be a mix of micronutrients a lot of times you know they've also got nitrogen in them or sulfur in them or iron in them well those really tend to make the plant more green as well exactly. so you, you always wonder okay how much of this is visual and how much of this am i truly going to see in yield but again it 
you work it in a grower system. Is you already pushing some yield plateaus that are really high, and frankly, there aren't a lot of easy things left. Well, then, if, if the plant's a little healthier a little later, it's more likely we're going to get some yield response to that. Um, copper, chloride, you know, we talked about iron a little bit already. One, one thing with iron is a lot of that goes back to what's the soil pH? Am I using, especially with soybeans, a variety that's going to work well in that high pH environment? Same, you know, look at corn and a variety as well. But copper and chloride, think about those two a little bit. We're talking about those two a little bit. You know, uh, copper... If you're doing edible beans is a no-brainer. Uh, chloride on wheat is a no-brainer. Chloride on corn, I've seen some data for with some yield responses. I've seen uh, seen a lot of disease resistance in wheat. I the one thing that we haven't ever tested, and I'd love to do it, is is it help with late season diseases in corn? Yeah, we yeah. see that disease suppression yep. in the wheat side another another grass crop is there an ability for that chloride to give us a disease suppression in corn or the copper or yeah, the copper i, I think the one. same thing you know when i think about copper and, and maybe some benefits on a foliar application is there some disease suppression benefits and some of these diseases you know they're not just funguses right so fungicide isn't always the answer to plant diseases you know we've got a lot of things out there that are bacteria we've got things out there that are virus could copper help us probably more with the bacteria than the virus but you know there's a copper product that that they a copper sulfate product that they promote that says it suppresses goss as well right you know and we're seeing this bacterial leaf stripe in uh, in corn more as well exactly so, yeah there may be some opportunity there Another thing I want to bring up, and I know I've heard you preach this one, Mick, is your uh, your burner herbicides. So you're throwing something down, and I see it a lot on soybeans. Um, you know, you've got something out there, and it's really whacking some of those leaves at about a V4, V5 stage. And, and we always say, well, you know, soybeans, they bounce back from a lot of things. Heck, we've got high-yield guys throwing cobra on them just to get them to bush out more. I do like a foliar micronutrient, again, for a guy who's pushing good yields, maybe to help it metabolize or make up for some of the things those herbicides are doing. You know, we've seen a lot of faster recovery with that micronutrient pack in there with our burner herbicides. Uh, I've worked with, with one for several years that I've seen it bounce back. It gives us a yield benefit. It gives us a faster recovery, sometimes lessens that burn from on the soybeans themselves without, without causing a problem with the efficacy of the herbicide itself. That's a key thing. Anytime you're tank mixing nutrients in with a herbicide, they need to be chelated so they're not going to be causing issues with that herbicide. If you, if you mess up your weed control program trying to pick up a couple extra bushels through a, a foliar micronutrient pack, you're going backwards. Exactly. Well, Mick, I think that pretty well wraps it up for in-season nutrients. Anything else that you think our listeners need to hear? I think the key, Tim, is that they get the every, everything right from the start. Let's start with nitrogen. Let's go to sulfur. Let's go to potassium. Let's not worry about that boron until we get those things right. Uh, and we're actually chasing some higher yields. And I think later on we're going to talk about some you know, trying to obtain some of those higher higher end yields. 
Right. You know, the one end comment I'll give people, and you've heard me say this one before, it came from one of my uh, good soil professors uh, back at uh, Lincoln. And uh, he always talked about, you know, if I'm hungry, I don't go spreading peanut butter on my arm. So in-season nutrients are great, but they're a supplement to an overall fertility program. Now, like we talked about with nitrogen, such a mobile nutrient in a lot of soils and cases, it makes sense to put maybe even the majority, I'll give you that one, maybe even the majority of the nitrogen on in-season. But for these other nutrients, generally we're supplementing an overall fertility plan, and let's make sure we've got that base soil fertility right before we start spending too much time about how we're doing in season. And again, makes a difference what your soil textures are. Absolutely. If you're a sand, maybe this should be higher priority than what uh, you're talking about. But frankly, if you're a farmer in the sand and you haven't gone broke, you've got some of these things figured out already. They're, they've been playing with them for a while. All right, with Mick Godekin, I'm Tim Undorf, and you've been listening to the Soil Talk Podcast. <laughs>